You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will discuss the Jackson Hole Slangs. If you're new, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. Um, welcome, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Mystery Still Unsolved. Uh, it has been a long time, a hot minute since we have done an on-site episode. But looky, looky, what do we have ourselves here? That's right, an on-site episode. Um, yes, I am in Jackson Hole this week. It is stunning. Uh, Let me tell you, whenever I look outside, it's like I'm looking at a painting because everything is just perfect. Uh, We're just going to be up here for a little bit. We're actually here on like a mini family reunion. Not everybody was able to come, so it's kind of a mini one um, with my in-laws. So it's been really fun. We are going to go to Jenny Lake and we're going to take the ferry and we are going to go down into downtown Jackson and eat at Persephone's, which is like literally the best cafe in the world. And we're going to go to Liberty Burger. Give me liberty or give me death. I love it. Um, You guys, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I do not eat to live. No, no. I live to eat. So when I travel, I'm always thinking about where am I going to eat next? (laughs) Um, Another thing I do, which is pretty unusual, it's definitely not the norm, is whenever I go anywhere on vacation, I look up to see if there are any unsolved cold case murders in the area. As I'm sure you know, because it seems like it was all anyone could talk about last summer, Jackson Hole is very near Tetons National Park, which is where the very lovely Gabby Petito was murdered by her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, before he took his own life. That case, oh my gosh, you guys, last summer, the whole situation, it was just tragic and heartbreaking to watch things unfold in real time. Um... We do not know, or we do know who committed the murder, but Brian Laundrie was never held accountable for his crimes or never given a chance to explain what could have possibly led him to commit such a heinous act against Gabby. And honestly, if we're being real, it really doesn't matter what his reasonings or his justification were as there is just simply no excuse for taking the life of another person unless it's in self-defense. But I can't help but wonder... What on earth was going on leading up to that terrible tragedy? Um, I think motive will most likely forever remain a mystery still unsolved. um, Unless there's like some suicide letter that I have not heard about. Um, I was able to find a cold case that occurred here in Jackson Hole. It is a case that I had never heard of previously. And I'm wondering if that will be the same for you. Regardless of its unfamiliarity, or its familiarity, it is a crime that has gone unsolved for the past 37, almost 38 years, the infamous Jackson Hole slangs. Before we dive into the nitty gritty, we do have a bit of housekeeping to do. First and foremost, if you want to make the most out of this podcast, you should totally visit my Instagram account dedicated to the crimes that we cover on all of our episodes. You can find me at Mysteries Still Unsolved. 
There you can see photos, videos, you can comment your thoughts, theories, opinions on the cases and interact with others who are puzzle solvers and amateur potatoes, uh, couch potato sleuths, just like you and me. Uh, you can DM me a case suggestion. Um, if there's enough information to go with it, it might just get covered here on Mystery So Unsolved. I also have a website where you can binge my 81. Yep, that's right. A big fat eight. And next to it is a big fat one. 81 episodes. It is time to get your phone, text your bestie or your boo thing and tell them that tonight's the night to podcast and chill. Okay. If you haven't already, I would super appreciate a review wherever it is that you live to listen to podcasts. The more reviews, particularly good ones, I get, the easier it will be for lone, true crime loving wolves, a mystery still unsolved sigma to find me like a diamond in the rough. And they too can bask in the sunshine of 81 true crime podcasts that they thought they could only dream of. No dreaming. This is real life, baby. Okay, well, I think that just about wraps up my housekeeping for today. Good thing, too, because that's like my least favorite part of this podcast career that I've built myself. Um, I just want to get into today's case. So let us not stall or procrastinate a minute, a second longer. Here we go. In the early hours of June 21st, 1984, two YDOT employees, YDOT meaning Wyoming Department of Transportation, slowed as they approached a roadside pullout in the Hoback Canyon, just north of Bondurant. Something out of place had caught their eye. A Volkswagen Jetta sat idling, right blinker flashing. Okay, this is already getting too real for me because I used to own a Volkswagen Jetta in my early 20s. But that has nothing to do with the case, so I digress. Um, it appeared that there was a heap of something. They couldn't quite make it out in the morning's darkness, but it kind of looked like, but no, it couldn't be, right? It kind of, almost sort of, looked like a human body on the ground next to the car. However, as the wideout employees got nearer, the unbelievable became a reality. It was, in fact, a human body. In fact, it was a woman by the name of Lisa Ellers. This 27-year-old newlywed was on her way to meet her husband, Peter, in Florida. Ellers had left the bunnery around 5.30 a.m. after hugging a few friends goodbye. No one could have imagined that the goodbye would be permanent. Those highway YDOT employees found her just 40 minutes after she was giving hugs to her friends. She was face up in a pool of her own blood. Lisa had been shot twice at close range with, with a large caliber handgun, once behind her ear and once in the chest. News of her murder shocked Eller's friends and family and put the entire town of Jackson Hole on edge. When would the madness end? Because... Just 40 days earlier, a man by the name of John Rice had also been sh found shot when he was in his Aspen's condo, and he had also been shot execution style. Two murders in the span of a little more than a month? This was a big deal to folks down in Jackson Hole. I mean, this is Jackson Hole. They are known for their serene, picturesque mountainscapes and escape too many from the hustle and bustle of the big city. Of course, people died there. The rough terrain had caused many tourists and adventure extraordinaires their lives, but those were accidents. 
not like these deaths. You don't accidentally shoot someone execution style. No, no. These were not deaths. These were murders, and the residents of Jackson Hole wanted someone to be held responsible. What no one knew at the time was that their bad news would come in threes because just seven months before Rice's murder, a man by the name of Eric Cooper walked out of a Virginian saloon and off the face of the earth. He was never seen alive again. Police had assumed he had just moved. I mean, Jackson Hole is a pretty transitory location until a hiker near Signal Mountain found Eric's skull two years later. While the skull showed a single gunshot wound to the back of the head, his teeth were so perfectly intact and in great condition, so a positive identification of Eric was easy to make. That made it three. Count them. One, two, three murders in eight months. This, this was more murder than Jackson Hole had ever seen in such a short time span. Though Lisa's murder was the last of the three, her murder was the first to get the ball kind of rolling. Sublet County authorities announced on March 1st, 2009, that they had arrested a man by the name of Troy Willoughby. They actually arrested him originally because he was their man for the only other unsolved murder that they had on record at the time, a cold case that had been on their shelf for the past 25 years. So why not kill two birds with one stone? If, Tri if Troy was guilty of the murder 25 years ago that went unsolved, then he was probably responsible for the these three murders as well, right? They didn't have enough evidence for the three recent murders, but they did for the one 25 years ago, so they tried him for that case. They sent it to court and the jury literally within a matter of seconds found him guilty. And I mean, that's fast, too fast, apparently, because soon not only was Willoughby a free man, but he was a free man whose pockets had just gotten $1.25 million richer because the courts found that his case had not been fair. So he um, was granted a retrial and was found not guilty. But police didn't believe Willoughby had done it alone. They thought that two individuals, Tim Bass and Rosa Hosking, could have also been involved. Apparently, they had interviewed the friends separately and they were either lying or too high or both to not have a single instance in which their stories corroborated. Bass was a friend of Troy's who started singing like a canary when sublet cops threatened to pin the murders, all of them, on just him. He claimed that he and Hosking, who was Troy's wife at the time, were there in the canyon pullout when Willoughby decided to kill Lisa. Troy's wife confirmed the story. Willoughby's own son, who was a teenager at the time, even corroborated that his dad had on multiple occasions bragged about killing someone in the canyon in 1984. It was enough for authorities to make an arrest. After 17 hours of interrogation, Troy finally admitted to being in Hobart Canyon and seeing Lisa's car there, even though he recanted his claims five days later, claiming that, no, no, he was actually working on an oil rig the morning in question. Willoughby's story didn't have much weight to it, however, because a handwriting expert testified that his time card had been forged and that hand-in-hand -hand with a co-worker who admitted that Troy had given them $100 to sign in for him gave police kind of all they needed. New evidence showed that the three individuals in question had a lot of things in common with our three newer victims, drugs, Florida, and Cabell Venable. One could say that Jackson Hole is very much a party town today, but apparently it's nothing like it was circa 1983-1984. Police officer Russell said, quote, there was a very active drug scene, end quote. 
Not only that, but the United States as a whole was very much an anti-drug scene. Remember the war on drugs? Nowadays, police officers don't really have the resources to actively focus on drugs. Most likely, they will stumble across it while they're taking care of another crime. Um, Police officer Andy Pearson is currently working the Cooper murder, a case that was reopened uh, by Russell in 2010. He said, quote, if you had been here, Jackson Hole, 30 to 40 years ago, it was a completely different town. A lot of people had formed some really strong bonds and they weren't exactly Boy Scouts. Everyone was crazy together and they weren't handing out any details, end quote. It seems like in a sentence, everything having to do with the Jackson Hole slayings goes back to Florida, which is kind of creepy if you think about it, because that's where Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito were from. Oh, what is this connection between Jackson Hole and Florida? Um, connections to Florida pop up like weeds in all three of the open murder cases. So an associate of Rice was executed in Florida on the same day that Rice was found shot in his condo. Coincidence? <laughs> a 22 caliber pistol thought to be the murder weapon in the Cooper case as well uh, was found in a safety deposit box in 2006 at the bank where John Rice worked. It was traced back to a Florida pawn shop. So yeah, that means that the same gun that was used to kill Cooper was the same gun that was used to kill John Rice. Um, Ellers, Lisa Ellers, and her husband spent winters in Panama City, Florida. According to Detective Funk, Peter Ellers worked for a man named Hamilton Gray Kenner of Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. So Kenner owned a shipping company named Clipper Fleets that was rumored to be pretty deep into the drug trade. Um, Ellers and Kenner formed a restaurant group in Jackson. Cabell Venable was their lawyer. Okay, so when talking to Detective Funk, he said, quote, yeah, the Florida connection. Um, I think Cabell might have had some connection with that. Cabell was an attorney over the restaurant group that Peter Ellers was a part of, and Cabell was also big time into drugs, end quote. Venable was into something, maybe everything. The high-profile Jackson attorney was indicted on charges he built several locals out of approximately $1.5 million. He was eventually convicted on one count, disbarred, and left the area to practice law in guess where? Guess where? Florida! Uh, Venable died of a heart attack while in Spain in 1999 when he was 57 years old. In Jackson's heyday, Venable reportedly operated a bar on the outskirts of town where gambling and drugs were on the menu. Nightly. It was their nightly special. Uh, Detectives placed both Ellers and Rice at Venable's notorious late-night soirees, but never together. So they were always there independently of each other. Ellers told friends that she did not know Rice when she learned about his murder. Rice's roommate told investigators that the trio had all met once at the bank Rice worked at weeks before Rice was slain. So it's possible that Lisa might have met him, but just like it didn't make that much of an impression on her. So when he died, she didn't put two and two together. Russell, however, doesn't buy a Venable connection. He says, quote, that that's a conspiracy theory. 
The rumor was Venable was a coke-dealing attorney. Yes, he did likely deal drugs in the 80s, allegedly. A lot of people thought Venable was capable of committing these murders for drug deals that were gone bad, but there is no forensic evidence at this time whatsoever that connects Venable other than he might have done drugs in the 80s. There's no connection. We haven't gone down that road because it's not even a road, end quote. When these officers are asked about alleged conspiracy theories, the two often laugh and ask, which one? Of course, there is certainly a crooked cop theory. I feel like all of our cases have a crooked cop theory. The belief that these cases haven't been solved simply because a brother in blue or more than one is involved, and that's why the Sublet County Police Department is putting the kibosh on it. Um, many believe some police officers got involved in funneling drugs from North or South Dakota, and that Jackson Hole would have been a likely stop along the way. Uh, the detectives say that the Dakotas were huge. The connection there is Dan Davis and Pat Sharkey. Davis and Sharkey were both convicted on federal drug trafficking charges in 1985, so not that far after the murders. He says, quote, they were big into what was then speed. It was just getting started. Um, they were getting in tight with Hell's Angels and outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, somehow, Rice's roommate was tied into that knowing them or having met them or something. And that's kind of how the Dakotas are pulled into this, end quote. The detectives have heard about the corrupt cop theory, and they say, if that's the case, they individually only have loyalty to the victims themselves, not to cops who served in Jackson 30 to 40 years ago. Um, they're each determined to find and share the truth, no matter what that truth may be. There is also a theory involving a seedy nightclub that all three of the victims had frequented at some point in their lives leading up to their deaths. It was called the Highlander Bar. Um, it's now known as the Rose. So I'm going to try and find it while I go into downtown Jackson and see if I can find it. Uh, the owner at the time, Mark W. Jones, had a lien filed against his club in 1984 by the IRS for unpaid taxes. He disconnected his phone and just skipped town. The Highlander was no more, and that's when the rose kind of came to be. Uh, William says it was an interesting era, things happen, and the Highlander seemed to be a magnet in all three of these cases. We did interviews and recreated Eric Cooper's Night of the Disappearance and were able to talk to a few individuals that were the last to see him at the Highlander, end quote. Um, he didn't say it like that. That's just how I'm saying it. Okay, police say that over the years, they've been able to narrow down their list of suspects to two in the Cooper case and may soon be ready to announce an arrest. When pressed further on this, police were pretty tight-lipped, so let's just keep our fingers crossed, okay? Uh, they did say that they recently obtained evidence, which includes a 22 pistol, a scrap of t-shirt that may belong to an attacker, and they recently got a promising DNA report from the crime lab they use in good old Utah. Good old Utah. Um, Pearson says, quote, I have a guy I truly think did kill Eric Cooper. I think he did this. And the thing is, I know him. I've known this guy since I've been in the area myself, end quote. 
Funk admits the Rice case has gone cold, but he is eager to see what the police department digs up with Cooper. Meanwhile, that Lisa Eller's family has had their closure kind of torn from their grasp, and they are no closer today to finding peace. Worse, a confidentiality clause signed by the state as part of a lawsuit settlement brought by Troy Willoughby himself could lock up important evidence in the Rice and Cooper cases should they ever be connected. It seems as though when they go one step forward, they fall two steps behind. The information regarding Lisa Eller's family is devastating as it means there's a possibility that her case and Rice and Cooper's case may never be solved, and they may never receive justice. Breaking news. In the years Lisa's homicide went unsolved, two things never changed. A man by the name of Troy D. Willoughby and the Sublette County Police Department. They never gave up. A jury found Troy Willoughby, 46, guilty of first-degree homicide after hearing seven days of testimony and viewing more than 80 exhibits. He was finally found guilty for the murder of Lisa Ellers. According to testimony, Willoughby followed Ellers as she drove south on Highway 191, somehow got her to pull over by flashing his lights, and shot her twice because she had left a party in Jackson Hole just before dawn and she had forgotten to pay him for the drugs. Troy had been identified as a potential suspect days after Lisa's murder, so he was a likely suspect from the beginning. Apparently, an anonymous phone call was made to Crime Stoppers not too um, long after Lisa died, um, and it pointed that this individual knew Lisa's killer. Later, the police picked up someone for the John Rice murder, and the things that the witness was saying when they had him in their interrogation room was very similar to that anonymous tip they had received regarding Lisa. So the detectives at the time decided to ask this witness point blank, hey, were you the one who made the anonymous call to Crime Stoppers? And the individual's face went white and they said, I, I can't talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. So police forwarded this information to the police officers who were working on Lisa's case and they all knew that they were on the right track. Uh, Willoughby's name had come up an eight witness reports, but the police never had had enough evidence to do anything about it. But that all changed with that little lab report I told you about that came back from the Utah lab. When the truth about Lisa's death came out, family, friends, and officers alike were worried about the public response to it. They were all very concerned with Lisa's story basically being summed up by Lisa was a party girl and she had it coming. But Rischel said to the reporters, quote, nobody deserves to be shot alongside of the road like an animal. Should Lisa have gone into drugs? No, but no one deserves to be shot like that, end quote. Sheriff Barden said that he has worked on many cases, but never one this old and with this many witnesses who had like passed away due to aging or, you know, cardiac arrest. Sheriff Barden said he kept his personal thoughts about whether he felt Troy Willoughby would be convicted to himself. He says, I just didn't want to um, get anyone's hopes up. When they finally said the word guilty in court, though, I could finally breathe, end quote. The cases of John Rice and Eric Cooper still remain unsolved, but I'm curious, 
What do you think? Do you think Troy Willoughby is responsible only for the death of Lisa Ellers, or do you think that he had a hand in all three of these murders? Do you think it has anything to do with the old owner of the bar, Mark W. Jones, who skipped town shortly after the murders where, I mean, all of the murder victims had gone to his bar? Do you think all three crimes are connected, or do you just think like two of them? Or maybe you don't think any of them are connected. Let me know in the comments of the post I made today regarding today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I so appreciate you all joining me week after week as we attempt to put our heads together and solve life's most atrocious puzzles. Make sure you head over to my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Like I said, this is an on-site episode. So I'm here in Jackson Hole, baby, and I'm going to be posting fun things and stories and answering any questions that might come up. So if you have any questions or you want me to look into anything, shoot me a DM. Uh, Don't forget about my website, www.mysterystillunsolved. There you can binge my 81 episodes. That's right, 81. Can you even believe that? Time is like flying. Uh, Leave me a review, hopefully a nice one, so other true crime lovers can find me. Uh, Tell a friend or a family member or a hotel clerk or a gas station attendant or Jehovah's Witness that comes a knocking on your door about me but want to know the best way to support this podcast? Of course you do. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?